0: As they head out, I'm going to encourage you to open up your Bibles or digital devices to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 32 today. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now, one thing that you may know, I'm hearing all the bottles falling over, just not even distracted, not at all. Um, One thing you may know is during the week leading up to a Sunday, I try and send out things through social media, and things through email, so you can read the passage ahead of time, so you can see kind of the angle that we're going towards, and where we're headed. Now, if you had an opportunity to read this passage this week in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, you might have seen that this passage has some tough words describing those who are unbelievers, as well as an in-your-face challenge to those who call themselves believers. He's saying, hey, you guys gotta live differently. And it's a tough thing for us to see because so often there's this weird gray area between the unbeliever and the believer that we have a tendency to fall into. But he says, I want you to think differently. I want you to live differently because you are different. You are different in Christ. You have a new life. Or as Paul says in verse 24, you put on a new self, which should result in a new walk. And as we're going to see over the next couple of weeks in chapter 5, we're going to see that leads to a, a new walk in love, in a new way to walk in light, and a new way to walk in wisdom. But before we get too far into what we're going to talk about, let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the phrase or the word doppelganger? Do you know what it means? A doppelganger by definition, is somebody who is remarkably similar or double to you, a lookalike that is not related to you. The reason why I ask that is because it is said that we all have a doppelganger in the world, and some of us are fortunate enough to have met them. And I ask also because of this, last week in our Walk Worthy series, as we continued in Ephesians, we talked about using our diverse gifts for the unity of the church. We talked about how each individual has a function within the body for the greater whole, the church. And we actually stopped in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 that told us the church should look like Christ. Our doppelganger should be Christ. And when we look at that, my question for us today that we're going to dive into is, what does our church look like? What does our church look like? Who is our church's doppelganger now while the hard truth here is unlike us as individuals we have a few million or maybe even billion choices for a doppelganger the church has two it's either the world or it's christ that's it that's all we have so who is it do we look like the world do we look and act like the unbelievers that we see around us every day Do we talk like them? Do we think like them? And do we value what they value? Do we mirror their lives? Or, on the other hand, do we look like Christ? Do we talk like Christ? Do we walk like Christ? And do we think like Christ? Which, by the way, is completely different than those of the world. Here in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is actually asking the church at Ephesus this very question. He's saying, you know, Who do you look like? Do you look like the world, or do you look different like Christ? And our answer to that question really is incredibly important. Some may ask, well, why? Why does it matter? Why does it matter what we look like and what we talk like? Well, because everything literally hinges on the answer to this question. If we claim to be followers of Christ, but our doppelganger is the world, and we look like the world, and we talk like the world, and we act like the world we might just be lying to ourselves about being followers of Christ. I know that's a tough statement, but it's kind of like the old saying, if it walks like a duck and looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. So let's remember that. But if our doppelganger is Christ, if we are becoming more like him in our thoughts and more like him in our actions and more like him in our words, I truly believe we are on the right path and we are where we need to be as Christians. In today's passage, I'm going to tell you this right here, right now. Paul lays it all on the line. He pulls no punches. So today, my message will pull no punches. Some of you are not going to like it. I'm just going to lay that out now. Some of you are going to be challenged. Some of you are going to be angry. But Paul says it, not me. So be angry at him. Okay, I'm just passing it along for you, okay? Here's what he says. He says, I want you to make an honest assessment of yourself. I want you to make an honest assessment of the church and I want you to make an honest assessment so much so to just be real. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie about what we think. If we look like Christ, praise God. But if we do not, if we look like the world, he says, repent and return to following Jesus. It's that simple. Remember, Paul spent the first half of the letter telling believers who they are by the grace of God about the riches we have in Christ because of that grace of God and that you've been forgiven of your sins, that you've been adopted into his family, his heavenly family, and it was on purpose and for a purpose. Chapter four starts telling us what that purpose is all about. And it's laid out in the second half of this book. Our response to everything that God has done because of the grace of God in our lives that we should be changed and we should be being changed. Paul shows some of that truth by contrasting us with how the unbeliever thinks and acts and how we should think and ask so if you have your bibles open again ephesians chapter 4 starting in verse 17 says these words therefore i say this in testifying the lord which by the way is a bold statement he says this isn't on my authority this is on god's authority you should no longer walk as the gentiles by the word gentiles he's talking pagans or unbelievers don't walk as they do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Those are powerful, heavy-hitting words. If you want me to summarize it in one sentence, he says, don't live like non-Christians. Don't live like an un-Christian. Don't live in that way. Don't don't live like the surrounding pagan culture. Why? Well, from what we read here, what Paul says is that the culture, what they think, is wrong. It's that simple. It's wrong. Their minds are darkened. They are blinded to the truth, and they've come up with their own truth. I know this was written two thousand years ago, so it doesn't apply much today. But we're just reading from what it is, right? Their worldview is wrong. And if you're thinking, man, Paul, that sounds incredibly offensive. I'm offended. It's because it is offensive. And you should be offended if you are not following the truth. Because sometimes the truth, let's scratch that. Most of the time, the truth can be offensive if we don't fall in line with it. It's going to offend us, it's going to make us feel uncomfortable. And the thing is is that sometimes we just want to change the truth. As a matter of fact, I was reading an article this week that talked about how uh, I'm not sure if you've paid any attention to all the AI, artificial intelligence and all the things they can do and all the, the ways they're actually rewriting books now um, to make them more culturally appropriate, and they can do them so fast and print them out so fast that most people don't even know. And you think, well, what books? One of them is the Bible. They're actually going after the Bible and and trying to change it to be more culturally appropriate. I don't know how much is going to be left, honestly, if they try and change anything. But I think he's making here a strong compare and contrast argument that needs to sink in for the followers of Christ. He says, this is what you've been saved from. This is what you've been saved from. And honestly, Paul describes the world culture in one single word. He says the word futility. Futility do you know what futility means? it means uselessness it means frivolousness it means meaninglessness that's what he's saying here the pagans' lives are lived out for a meaningless goal by using a meaningless method of thinking that's what he's trying to get across here and you think well he describes the world uh, the, the world's culture in one single word, but guess what he doesn't stop there because then he goes on to say the are darkened. They're darkened in their understanding. They have no light. They are blacked out. Sin has produced a major malfunction in your mind. What is your major malfunction? It's sin. That is where we find ourselves here. And then he says, hey, by the way, they're also hard hearted. I'm not sure if you remember a couple of weeks back when we did our but God ser- our sermon, and it was on Ephesians chapter 2. But before those two words in Ephesians chapter 2, 4, when it says but God. He lists out who we once were. Let me read it for you. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and our thoughts. And we were by nature children under the wrath as others were also. Then those two amazing words, but God. Before those but God, it it described our condition. And Paul even takes it a step further in verse 18, for those who are not in Christ. Look at what he says. He says, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the spiritual hardness of their hearts. You know what he says? They're cut off from God. Cut off from true spiritual life. And why does he say that? (laughs) He says they're ignorant. Now, if you ever called somebody ignorant before, it's not generally a, a very well-received term. It's not a good one to come out of our mouth even, but he says it here. He says, you are uneducated, you are unaware, and you are uninformed. You're like, well, if I'm uneducated, unaware, and uninformed, that should get me off the hook. I shouldn't have to worry about what God thinks because I didn't even know. Not so much because he says in verse 19, they became callous, meaning they have heard the good news, but they hardened their hearts to it. They've heard the good news, but they will not respond to it. I read an interesting study recently about why people do what they do. And it was by a world-renowned social psychologist who actually specializes in moral theory. This is his goal. And he started watching people. And in it, he, he started to really look at, at how they do what they do. And he asked this question, Why good people disagree on core moral issues and political issues? Well, this is what he learned after years of watching people people typically believe certain things because they first want to believe them. That's why they believe certain things. In other words, for most people, desire precedes belief. Then that desire produces belief, and as it produces belief, then they go find rational and even sometimes irrational thoughts and reasons to support their belief. But the thing that anchors their belief is not primarily truth. It's their desire to believe the thing In the first place. Again, we don't see this much, right? People just kind of come up with their own things in it. The study is coming actually from a non-Christian though. It's coming from a non-Christian that is just observing human nature. But if you want to swing over to what Paul is actually saying, he actually says this. Unbelievers believe the wrong things because they want to believe the wrong thing. That's what he's saying. Because they have a dead and hardened and callous heart. Paul is saying... What they want to think results in their actions. And he says this in verse 19, they became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. Basically, they do whatever they want with whoever they want, however they want. The word promiscuity. Kids, ask your parents about that. So they gave themselves to it. And why'd they do it? Well, because they had a practice for every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. You know what that verse is saying about the world? It's saying they lack moral restraint. They lack sexual restraint, which leads to a greedy, it's all about me, it's all about my pleasure, my happiness, my ultimate good, my feelings, no matter who I hurt in the process. It's about me and my desires first. And the problem with those desires are they are never quenched. It says they want more and more. Ultimately, it's about how they pervert what god has wanted for them but they don't care because they're callous so they continue to want more and more and here's the thing i keep using the word they if you are walking in the world it is not they it is you and that's something we have to repent of as a follower of christ the wanting more and more I'm not sure if you uh, ever watch TV or walked into any store this month, but you'll see the more and more. You'll see the desires of more and more. and, and you have to ask this question: How did it get like this? How did it get like this? And, and I'm probably going to say something that's going to make somebody mad, and I don't even know if I should apologize for it, but back in 2008, when the government thought it was right to define, or sorry, redefine God's definition of marriage it began a slippery slope. And I, I said it then, I'm like, this is a bad thing and we're going to see bad results happen. And the response I generally got from people was this. It was, no, love is love. Love is love. And, and not only is love is love, it's just marriage. It's two people who love each other and they're just getting married. And I'm like, but the Bible tells us they want more and more. And it's going to be a slippery slope that's going to to lead to all sorts of other things. Because of the darkened world wanting more and more. They just can't redefine marriage. They're going to want to redefine sexuality. They're going to want to redefine gender. They're going to do twisted things in a darkened world that are going to start involving children. Here's the deal. That was said in 2008. It's been 15 years. Here we are. Here we are. And when I look at that, I would love to say, I told you so. Because I tend to gloat when I win. But I didn't win. That's the problem. First of all, because there's no winner in this. And second of all, Paul already said it 2,000 years ago. He said, sinners are going to sin. Why are we surprised when they do? He says, in their greed, their sinful desires are going to grow. Unsaved people have not changed, and they won't unless they meet Jesus. As a matter of fact, Paul goes into greater detail in Ephesians chapter five verses 3 through 14, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. But if you want to look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, you'll see him go into greater detail. If you look at Galatians chapter five, verses 16 through 21, you're going to hear what he has to say, but I'll give you the basic foundation of both of those. The corrupted nature of humanity is due to sin. That gives way to idolatry, and the idolatry generally revolves around self, and that leads to immorality, and that leads to a total corruption of the self, and that's why it says at the end of 22, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be honest, left to ourselves and our sinful desires and our selfish desires, left to our feelings and our pleasures, we are vile people. And I say we. We. Even though some people may may seem less vile, all are in desperate need of Jesus. Remember what verse 18 says. All of this leaves all of us cut off from God. A mind that rejects Christ leads to a life that rejects Christ leads to an eternal life that rejects Christ. And you might be thinking, man, Paul is pretty tough on unbelievers here. But here's something we need to remember. What is the point of this passage and what is the point of this book? It is that you are made worthy so you can walk worthy. You are made worthy for a purpose. God doesn't just change your identity. He changes your activity. He says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul is writing to new converts at Ephesus and explaining to them how the grace of God should change their lives in a real and tangible way. And how all of these things are actually for the benefit of the church and for the glory of God. And Paul is calling believers to sanctification, which is a changing and becoming more like him. But at the same time, he's also pointing to the need that the unbelievers need salvation. And that is our job to take it to them. That is what we're called to do. And I said it up front, we need to get real. We need to ask ourselves the hard questions and be honest in our answers. As a believer in Christ, how is your thinking? How is your thinking? How is your view and knowledge of scripture? Are you learning and living out the whole truth of God's word? Or are you living, as Paul says, ignorantly? And only living on the parts that you want to believe is your desire coming before the truth. Are you listening to God or is your heart hardened and callous and dark because you want to believe your desires before you believe God's truth? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Again, tough questions. And if you're living in the futility of your mind and you think you're too far gone, let me remind you of two great words. The same ones I've already said. Verse 4 of chapter 2. But... God, if you don't hear anything else I say for the rest of today, if you didn't hear it, if you've already kind of tuned me out, tune back in for just a second. God can transform anyone by his grace. Anyone. Anyone. We have no idea how many in the church at Ephesus match the darkened description only to be made into a new creation. Paul's laying it out and the point is clear. As a new creation, we're supposed to think different. You know what's funny? There was an ad slogan back in the 90s for a now-popular computer company. It wasn't quite as popular then, but the company was Apple. And Apple adopted the slogan, Think Different. And the reason why they did is because at at the time, there was a larger computer company by the name of IBM that actually had the idea and slogan of Think. If you have an IBM, which is probably like three of you... um, if you have an IBM, their their laptops were actually called ThinkPads. So what A- Apple did is they specifically went out to challenge the thinking of IBM and said, hey, we need to stand out and we need to be different from our competitors and not blend in. So we will think different. Well, the reason why I tell you that is this. If we could just adopt that idea, if we could just think different, we too would stand out as lights in this dark world. Did Jesus say that at some point in time? I'm per pretty sure he did you might want to check matthew chapter 5 for that one think different thinking differently leads us to living differently which leads us to acting differently which leads us to to talking differently and loving differently and, and responding to the truth differently we've been able to and able to live holy lives by the power of the holy spirit can i just challenge you to plug into it To plug in and charge up by the Spirit. That's what Paul lays out next in verses 20 through 24. He says, this is how we live as a new creation, with a new identity. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and he put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Paul says, this is why you can't live as pagans. Because as a follower of Christ, you have been given a Christ-centered education. Not just an informational education, but a transformational education that has changed you and is changing you. So how are we transformed? Well, first in this Christ-centered education, we have to understand this. Christ is the subject. It says you came to know Christ, or if you have the ESV, it says you learned Christ. Christianity is about knowing a living being, the person of Christ. Not just knowing about him, like you know about George Washington or some other historical figure. It's about knowing and developing a relationship with him. And that's what leads Paul to say this in verse 21. He says, assuming you've heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, Paul knows that the church of Ephesus has had its fair share of false teachers come through since his last visit. He says this, a question that we all need to know. Do you know the real Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus? Because if you don't, you can't live out this new life and you can't walk this new walk. If you don't know Jesus, you can't do it. Christianity is a relationship. It's not about trying harder. It's not about following rules. It's not about moral obligation or attendance to church. It's not about believing in a God or doing good things. It's not even about your feels when you go to a religious event and they do a great job of manufacturing tingles on your arm. That's not what it's about. It's not even about knowing facts about Jesus. It's about knowing Jesus. About knowing Christ. As a matter of fact, listen to Jesus himself in John 17, 3, when he says these words, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and the one who have sent Jesus Christ. Again, let's get real. Do you know Jesus personally? Do you know him? Because if you don't, today is the day. Today is the day to meet him. Christ isn't just the subject, but he's also the teacher. Here again in verse 21, it says, you heard about him. But you know the original language doesn't have the word about. It says you heard him. You heard him. Do you hear him? Do you hear his voice? Do you hear his teaching? And do they penetrate your heart? He is alive and he is speaking. The question is, are you listening? That's a dad question, isn't it? Are you listening? And Christ isn't just the subject and the teacher. He's also the context of the teaching. He's the context of it all. See, you were taught by him or some translations say in him. He is constantly teaching. He's constantly teaching us. I know He's constantly teaching me. I know He's constantly challenging me and my thinking. I know He's constantly working on me as I'm in His presence, as I'm in His Word, and as I'm conversing with Him in prayer. But you know what, when I'm not doing those things, I know it. Do you know it? Do you feel it when you're not in prayer and when you're not conversing and when you're not reading? They say 20% of people who go to church read the Bible on a regular basis. The other 80% only do it on Sunday mornings when the pastor's doing it for them. How do you you survive in the Christian life? How how do you have the the strength to make it through? Because see, when I'm not doing it, I know it. But you know who else knows it? Everybody who's around me. Because the words we're going to read here at the end of this talk about bitterness and anger and malice and slander. All those things that tend to bubble up to the surface when I'm not in the Word. But when I am, the things, the power of Christ holds those down. He is the context. He's not just a subject, teacher, in context. He's also the truth. The result of teaching that is centered on Christ, that comes from Christ, and is the context of our relationship with Christ, I can guarantee if you're in it, you're walking in the truth. You're walking in the truth because Jesus is the truth. Again, I'm going to say something that's probably contrary to, who knows if YouTube's already shut us down from the things I've already said, but... If if they haven't yet, this might be it. The truth is not based on some darkened thought process by a group of people who want to be cut off from God. The truth has nail-scarred hands and he's alive. Jesus is the truth. Find him and find real life. But he doesn't stop there he goes on in verse 22 through 24 paul says to take off that formal way of life the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self the one created according to god's likeness in righteousness and purity of that truth that we just talked about three things take off be renewed put on take off be renewed put on there's discussion about when this happens Scholars like to sit around and talk about these kind of things. They say, is it a conversion or are they a requirement that needs to happen after conversion? Well, sometimes the scripture doesn't give it to us, but we go to another one. I told you right up front from Ephesians, Colossians has a whole lot of parallels. He goes into more detail in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. So, But now put away the, all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your Creator. The command here is to put away. The list of sins is based on the fact the old self is gone and the new self is in place. Basically, saying the old self is gone, the new self has come. So we need to live like it by putting away sin constantly, continually. Walk differently, live differently. Leave behind the old. Leave behind the old. A new life is now and forever. Here's the thing I think about when I think about this. I didn't go into a lot of detail, uh, even when it, at the beginning of Ephesians, when it says we're adopted into his family. But being Father's Day, I get to go into a little bit of detail and brag on my kids a little bit. I have seven amazing kids, three of which are biological, four of which are adopted. I'm going to speak about the ones that are adopted here for just a second. Because when we walked in and met them. Chrissy's the only one that actually got to go to an orphanage when she got glory. But the other ones, we we were met someplace else. But when she went into the orphanage to get glory, this I can be a little bit more specific with, the orphanage was a dump. The the, the old life that she had was a dump. She was two years old, a little over two years old, and weighed 13 pounds because in that orphanage she got one bottle a day. She was wearing used hand-me-down clothes. One of my favorite pictures is Endale, our our first little guy we brought home from Ethiopia. The very first picture we got from him, he's covered in snot and he's wearing like a baby's bonnet. He looked like a little girl kind of, but he was just disheveled and glory looked weak and frail. And I think about that and I say that because of this. What if they had not been taken out of their old situation? What if they had not been taken out of their old clothes? What if they had not been saved from their old lives? What if? I'll tell you right now, the doctors told us Glory would be dead. She would not have survived. As a matter of fact, if we hadn't brought her home three, four weeks before COVID started, she wouldn't have survived that either. She was in heart failure when we brought her home. You you put that into practice and you think about that, I'm not bragging on anything that we did, but I can say, I can look to God and say look what he did. Because he did that for us. He took us from the old life. He took us from the old clothes. He took us from the old situation and he brought us into new and we should be flourishing in it just like my kids are now. But too many times we want to go back to the garbage. Too many times we want to lean back into that and say, well, but that's what everybody else is doing. I don't want to offend anybody. I don't know, whatever excuse we try and come up with. And God's like, "No, no, no. Focus on me." See how I've changed you, and let me continue to change you. He says, to put off that old, so we can be renewed continually by the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. And you know, this is the first time that he's given us a responsibility. You see, this is us taking action. We can't renew ourselves, but we have to put off the old, and we have to put on the new. That's that's our responsibility in all of this. The first time we see it, or other times we see it, again, there's that Colossians parallel. Colossians 3 says we need to set our minds on the things above. Romans chapter 12 says we need to lay down ourselves as a a living sacrifice, but the next words say stop conforming to the patterns of this world. Stop being like the pagans. Instead, we are supposed to be laying ourselves down as a living sacrifice and allowing him to renew our minds and transform us. Philippians 4 says meditate on the good and right and true things. God's going to do some amazing things in you and through you if we do it. Remember, Paul's writing to the church. He wants the church to do this so he can do amazing things. But first, we've got to pull off that old stuff. Paul wraps up this passage here. And honestly, um, I made a mistake. Mark that down your calendars. I don't say that often. I, I, I made a mistake that I thought I was supposed to go all the way through 32. But on my calendar that i had written down, I was only supposed to go and stop right there. So I started looking after I'd done all the work. I'm like, no, we can squeeze it in. So here we go, all right? These last couple of verses here, it really talks about us having to replace sinful habits with righteous and holy ones. He's laying it out for us. He says these switches here are going to have relational consequences involved, both with the church, again, Paul's writing to see us work together for the glory of God, but also relationship consequences with God. Paul says as we turn away, and you know what turn away means? means to repent. We turn away from our sins. We must also turn towards God. There's a negative of stop doing bad, but then there's the positive of start doing good. So for time's sake, I'm not going to read the whole passage. You guys can read it, but I'm going to highlight the the good and the bad in each one. The first one he mentions is lying versus speaking the truth. The old self would lie. The old self would tell half-truths. The purpose of it, selfish gain. Selfish gain, that's why we lie. We don't want to get in trouble. We don't want somebody else to get the better of us. And sometimes we tell a half-truth so we can get the better of them. That's the old self. The new self is going to focus on the truth, even if it doesn't benefit us. There's something else I want you to see. When it says about that lying. It goes a little deeper than what we might think. Romans chapter 1, verse 25, it says, And they, being the pagan world, exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We've got to stop the lies. We've got to... It's, trying to exchange the truth of God. We have to adopt the truth of God. Speak the truth of God. Sinful anger versus sinless anger. Old self, anger. Why do we get angry? To get our way, right? To try and dominate. New self, angry at the things that anger God. What we call righteous indignation toward unholiness, toward sin, toward justice. Next thing you list is stealing versus working and giving. The old self. Why do people steal? To take advantage of others. It doesn't have to be a physical theft. It could be stealing in any way, shape, or form. He says that's got to go. The new self works hard and shares with those in need. As a matter of fact, John Wesley put it this way, work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give as much as you can, because it's not about you. Corrupt talk versus edifying talk, and I'm going to take a little bit more time on this one, because Paul's telling his fo- followers of Christ to, to get rid of foul language now that word foul there is actually referring or it has two other references in the new testament one to rotting fruit and the other one to rotting fish so what's he actually trying to say here that word foul he gives us a picture of saying hey these things are rotten and they give no nourishment to the one who receives it as a matter of fact you give it to him it's going to make him sick so the same of that rottenness that comes from our mouth straight from a rotten heart what are some things would be included because that's what we always ask as a christian how far can i go That's that's our immediate question. What's included in foul language? Well, lying, abusive language, vulgar references. Christy said, are you really going to say this? I'm like, yep, that's what she said. If you watch The Office, you know what I'm talking about. That might be a bit of a vulgar reference, right? Attacking words, profanity, gossip, slander. These are all some of the things that fall into that. We like to throw in butt stuff. What about just telling you what the word says? Here's the truth of the matter, as a matter of fact. Matthew 12:36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. Oh, I'm just going to, I don't have to go any further with that one. It's a pretty powerful statement. But this is what Paul says. How about we replace all the rotten garbage with well-chosen, careful words. Words that build each other up. Words that encourage instead of destroy. Words that even correct, but correct in love. This is good for the church, isn't it? That's who he's writing to. But it's also good for families. It's good for spouses. It's good for friends. Edify, grow, encourage. This should be the focus of what comes from our mouths. The last statement he makes is this. Bitterness and rage versus kindness and forgiveness. Again, I'll go a little bit longer on this one. I'm actually going to read the verses for this one. Verse 31 says, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. couple of things. The old self gets bitter and resentful for when life doesn't go your way. Anybody attest to that? When we get a little bit bitter, especially when it goes better for somebody else, Paul says we've got to put off that resentment and bitterness. We've got to let go of the festering anger that eats us up. We, we've got to let go of the screaming outbursts that express our wrath. We've got to let go of the talk that tears people down, both to them and about them, we've got to let go of the hostility. And this is the reason why I'm taking a little extra time on this one. Some of the most bitter, angry, hostile people I have ever met in my life, you know where I've met them? In the church. Should not be the case. That should not be the case, and that's what Paul's saying. A new person is going to put on kindness and forgiveness every day. And you might be thinking in your head, but, can I just say this and I have it highlighted? Nope, no buts. No buts. We should be people known for kindness and forgiveness towards each other based on the depth of God's kindness and forgiveness that he has shown to us. Do you realize that Romans chapter 2 tells us that God's kindness actually brings us to repentance? And we should mirror that? And those last eight words of this last verse are a powerful reminder of forgiveness. This is what it says. Just as God also forgave you in Christ... If Jesus can forgive me for all that I've done in rebellion to him, I think I can forgive others. I think I can. Are there still consequences to a person's actions? Sure. But we need to be known as forgiving people. We need to be known as loving people. We need to be known as kind people. Imagine this for just a second. If we focus on God's love, his love, his kindness, and his forgiveness daily, if that's what we focus on, How would the results be different in our life, in our daily life? If we repent and we turn from our selfish ways and instead turn to him, what would the results be then? What would it look like in our relationship with each other? What would it look like in our relationship with God if we confess our sins? What's the Bible say? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What if we actually believed that truth? Because a lot of times, we don't want to confess our sins. We want to hold on to those bad boys. We, we, We want to live by them. We want to hold on to the things that aren't going to affect us in our daily living. If we confess, what will happen? If we begin to think differently in Christ, we will begin to act, live, and love, and walk differently. The challenge here is take off the old clothes and put on the new, and walk worthy. Can we just pray that God would give us the power to do so, to give us faith, to trust what he says, and live it out in our lives? Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your words. They're hard words. They're challenging words. They're words that I will have to hold account to even when I get home this afternoon. But they're words that are the truth. They're the words that offend my sinful being, but they are still the truth. God, may I have the power from you and your Holy Spirit to live and walk in that truth, and not just for my own good, but for your glory and for those all around me, that, God, they may experience the goodness of who you are. And if there's somebody in this room, God, that doesn't know you, that that can't say they're a follower of yours, I pray that the words that they saw and they could see just The implications of all of the things that have happened because of the darkened sin that we live in, that God, they want to turn from that and they want to turn turn to you, turn to your salvation and accept that gift you've given them, and then let the work of sanctification begin to take place in their life as they turn from the old things, they put off the old things, and they are being renewed by putting on the new things. God, it's all you. We can't do it on our own. We can try, but we're going to fail. God, we ask for your power. And for those who are in here that are struggling, that are walking that line between the darkness and the light and and, and maybe stumbling here and there, God, we're grateful for your grace and mercy, but give us strength to keep us from stumbling. We pray it in your name this morning, Lord. Amen. I'm going to sit down here in the front and here's the thing. You don't need to talk to me. You need to talk to God. If you're in a place, I'm not a priest, I'm not your go-between, that's already taken care of by Jesus. You need to go to God. We don't exactly have an altar to kneel at, but if you want to come up to the stage and kneel before the giant tub of root beer, by all means, do it. Don't care what anybody else thinks. It's between you and God. I'll be up here in the front if you do want to talk to me, but please talk to God about where you are and where you need to be.